good. Ooh. Hopefully I won't be too loud. I heard someone say Genesis 15. That would normally be true. That's where I'm at. Very well done. Someone's keeping track. But actually today, it's a bit of a special day. We're going to go to a different place. We're going to go to 2 Timothy. What? What are you doing? Throwing curveballs. Throwing curveballs. That's going everywhere here. 2 Timothy. Let me ask you a question at the outset while you're turning to the second epistle to Timothy. If you were put on death row for your Christian faith and you knew you didn't have too much time yet to live, what would you say? Would you write a letter to your son? I'll bet you would. Would you write a letter to your family? I'll bet you would. Would you write a letter to your church family? Well, I hope you would. What if you were the pastor? What if you were not just the pastor, you were the one that planted the church to begin with? Would you write a letter? I'll bet you would. I'll bet you would. Let me give you a little background on this book before we get there. Tell you a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was from the city of Lystra in Asia Minor. Asia Minor today is where? Anybody know? Long ago, it was much Greek, and then it was um, very much Jewish, and then it was very much Christianized, and today it is under the reign of Islam, actually. Where is it? Turkey. Asia Minor, today we know is Turkey. Okay? Born of a Jewish mother who'd become a Christian believer and a Greek father who is likely no longer around. So in essence, when we're looking at Timothy... We're seeing a young man who'd been raised by a very devoted Christian single mom. Didn't have a father figure in his life, or if he did, it wasn't much of one. You ever met anybody like that today? Are there young men like that today? Yeah, by the droves and scores. And so we could learn a lot from this book. The Apostle Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey. And he quickly took him under wing like a father would a son. Two things should be pointed out about that. Number one, he took him under wing like a father would. That should say something to those of us who are in the Christian faith who are a little bit um, older. I still think of myself as a young man, but I turned 40 this year. I looked in the mirror and said, it's not the same young man I remember seeing 20 years ago. I can finally grow some facial hair, though, so i got that going for me. That's nice. Some, not a lot. I think my voice is still changing. It still cracks at times. I'm not the same as I once was. I've walked with the Lord now for about 20 years. Not actually more than 20 years. 20, 21 years I've been walking with the Lord now and been in ministry for about 17. It seems like yesterday, but it's not. Why am I saying that? Because some of you, some of you need to be a Paul to a Timothy. And some of you, young men, need to be a Timothy to a Paul. You think you're Paul, but you need to be Timothy. Does that make sense? I've got news for you. I'm going to give you the spoiler before I get there. 
Actually, all of us need to be both. We need to have an older, wiser, more experienced person in the faith that we can ask tough questions to. And we need to be sensitive that those that the Lord sends our way who are not as far along in the faith as we are, that we are willing to invest in them, that we're willing to raise them up. I have news for you. Our church does not have the same vision as a lot of churches. We do not have the vision that we just want to add people and become a big church. It's not the vision here. It's not. If you think that is what we want to do, you need to reconsider what we're doing. The vision of this church is to raise up young men and women who will love the Lord, exalt the Lord, glorify the Lord in their lives, and will take the gospel out. The, the vision of this church is to plant more churches. The vision of this church is to raise up young men and women who can assist and help in that task. And it's a great day when we see that begin to happen. And we have seen beginnings of that and rumblings of that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Paul took Timothy under wing, and Timothy accepted his guidance as a father figure. Well, that's an uncommon phenomenon, isn't it? You may not notice this. If you're a little bit older, I want you to think back of, to you in your teens and your 20s. Did you know everything? Man, sure did I. <laughs> Let me tell you, I knew everything about, I knew everything about marriage until I got married. And I knew everything about child raising until I had children. I'm sure nobody else had that, that same kind of thing happen to them, right? And it's the same thing in our discipleship and in ministry, too. Sometimes there's things we can only learn from experience. You know what the, the tough thing about experience is? You only get it through experience. <laughs> you know what that means? Sometimes you get it by getting a nod on the head, don't you? And you learn from it and you grow. Now, Paul's first imprisonment in Rome was approximately A.D. 61 to 63, and we can read about it in the book of Acts. The very end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, we see that Paul was arrested. He's in Rome, but he's free to teach. He's still kind of under a house arrest, right? But then some things happen. That's kind of where the book of Acts ends. It doesn't really have a formal ending, and we like to preach about that. Hey, it doesn't have a formal ending because we're still supposed to be doing what Acts says, right? Spreading the gospel, and that's true. But there are other parts of that, of Paul's mission in life, that don't get recorded in the book of Acts. When we leave the book of Acts, we see Paul is, he's in that place, he's on the high, he's on the mountaintop, basically. Even though he's under sort of house arrest, he is, he is free to come and go. He's got visitors, he's telling people about the gospel, but guess what? He goes on and, uh, and is uh, imprisoned again later, somewhere between A.D. 66 in 68, we think he was martyred in A.D. 68, May or June, somewhere in there, if it matters to you. It was the second imprisonment where he wrote this letter to Timothy. And by the way, if you read First and Second Timothy, you'll notice there's a lot of parallels. There are things that he brings up in First Timothy that he again stresses in Second. Why? Because they're that important. Hey, Timothy, first, this is in 1 Timothy. Timothy, you need to appoint elders, and here's what they should look like. 2 Timothy. Hey, Timothy, you need to appoint elders, and here's what they should look like. There are some other things that are, that are going on there as well. Paul knew he was not going to be released alive. He knew that. 
He very clearly knew the end of my life is coming quickly. Why didn't he write more letters? It wasn't like today where you could just go down to Staples, grab some paper, pen a letter, and send it off by the postal carrier, right? It was very, very expensive to write letters. And if you were in prison, it was a very difficult task to get a, a letter written. Because they ain't bringing you paper and pen, son. You got something you need, you're going to have to have friends bring it to you. Which is something that Paul says to Timothy, right? What is one of the things Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy? Hey, hey, buddy, do me a favor. Would you pick up my coat? I left it with this buddy of mine. Would you bring it to me? Why? Roman prisons did not care if you were warm enough in the winter. If you got pneumonia and died, you're doing them a favor. You're just, you know, decreasing the prison population. So this second imprisonment of Paul's was very, very tough. And there's a point that I want to bring out in that. Paul was very, very tough. We have a problem in the reform circles that we run in. We think that if we have a lot of head knowledge, that means we're a big, mature Christian. And I've got news for you. If that was what Jesus was looking for, he wouldn't have called the disciples he called. Don't get me wrong. Head knowledge is a really good thing to have. But there's an element of toughness that you've got to have, too. Why did Jesus choose the men that he did? Because if nothing else, they were tough. Real tough. They weren't fishermen like we are today. Go out in the boat and throw a line out in the water. If I get one, great. No, they were pulling with their bare hand on nets, their bare wet hands on very heavy nets for eight or ten hours all through the night, multiple times a week. If you looked at their hands, they were very calloused. They did work. They were willing to suffer for the gospel. I've got news for you. I've got news for you. If you're going to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are going to suffer for the gospel. You're going to go to places that you don't particularly feel like going to. You're going to go at times that you don't particularly feel like going. You're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to be inconvenienced. You're going to find your life poured out as a sacrifice. It's not going to be easy, but it is going to be worth it. All that being said, what would you write? What would you write if you were on death row and you knew this might be the end? What does he tell Timothy? Timothy, please be diligent. Come to me quickly. Come before winter. Why? He knew the shipping lanes would close in wintertime. If you don't get here before then, I'm probably going to be dead by the time you get here. But by the way, what's the sad thing? Timothy didn't make it. I wonder if he regretted that. I'm sure he did. I know I would. What would you write? I want you to go to 2 Timothy. I'm going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. The beginning of the book of 2 Timothy, Paul says, look, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Basically, he's passing the mantle on. And you can see it in every line. He is basically telling Timothy this, Timothy, I've done what God's called me to do and my time here is about to run out. And now it's time for you to take the torch and do what God's called you to do. And here's what he says. 
You then, my child, my child. 30-year-old Timothy doesn't seem to be too uh, offended by being called his child. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men. It's interesting to me that when Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, Timothy, this is what I want you to find. These are the kind of men that you need to find to be leaders in the church. He does not say entrust them to intelligent men. He does not say entrust them to popular men. He does not say entrust them to well-equipped or well-connected politically men. What's he say? Entrust these to faithful men. What does it take to be faithful? It takes an amount of toughness. That's what it takes. It takes enough inner toughness to say, I'm going to stand up and speak the truth, and I'm going to do it even when it costs me. I'm going to live out my Christian convictions, and I'm going to do that even when living those Christian convictions out is going to cost me popularity. It's going to cost me political connectedness. It's going to cost me being popular in the social circles I run in. Because it's more important for me to be faithful to the audience of one, that is the Lord, than it is for me to make those other inroads. Entrust these to faithful Men. At at this church, we want to stress that over and over and over. We want to raise up, train up, and see faithful men. And faithful women, by the way. Who are able to teach others also. We want to train up faithful men who are able to teach others also. What does that mean? We want to train up faithful men who will in turn train up faithful men. I want to share a secret with you that I've learned from a few years of parenting. And I only have a few years in, almost five. That seems like this. Children are very poor at doing what they're told. But they are masters of imitating what they see. And I've got news for you, disciple maker. Disciples are very poor at doing what they're told. But they are masters at doing what they see. Jesus did not call the disciples and say, Hey, fellas, I want you to meet up with me three times a week. I want you to bring paper and pencil. I'm going to tell you all about this Christian faith. What did he say? Lekakarai. Come follow me. Ooh, that's, that's tough. You know why we don't like that? Because when people get in our lives, they see our weaknesses too, don't they? Well, Jesus didn't have to worry about that. He didn't have those. What about Paul? Did he have weaknesses? You bet he did. It was his way or the highway. He struggled with that throughout the entirety of his ministry. I mean, so much so that at one point his traveling companion goes, look, dude, I can't go any farther with you. And Paul basically says, fine, good riddance. And yet in 2 Timothy, at the end of his life, what does he say? Bring Mark. He's useful to me for ministry. That's his way of saying, tell him I still love him. 
and I'm sorry for the way I acted. There's an entire message in that. Have you had any of those moments? I have. I have. I'm 40 years old. I'm trying to have fewer of them today than I had at 20. But I still have them. Do I ever have moments where I lash out or I speak too harshly? Or I, sure. And I'm sorry for those. Let me tell you a little nugget of truth, disciple maker. You can teach anything you know, but you only reproduce what you are. That's an immutable law of biology, and it's also an immutable law in spiritual dimension of your life as well. You can teach anything you know, but you only reproduce what you are. That is why Christianity is not just head knowledge. That is why Christianity is two parts. It is part orthodoxy. And it is part orthopraxy. Those are kind of big words, aren't they? They're like $10 words, right? Ortho means, anybody know? Straight. Who said that? Exactly right. Straight or true. Ortho means straight. Like an orthodontist. Dente, dental. What is that? Teeth. Orthodontist makes your teeth straight, right? Orthodoxy is having your, if you will, doctrine or your teaching or your head knowledge straight. Orthodoxy, believing the right things. But there's another part to Christianity. And the problem is, in reform circles today, I don't know why this is, maybe because we're just so YRR, we're so young, reformed, and restless. We think if we've got a bunch of head knowledge, that's it. That's the pinnacle. That's the penultimate of Christianity. I have arrived. That's not true, though. I've got news for you. Let me tell you something about my spiritual life. I have had many times where my intellectual growth has outpaced my character. You ever had that? You, you probably have. In the West, that's kind of our problem. Right? We're pretty sure that we're the ultimate Christian if we know lots of stuff. But that's not the scripture. Now, don't get me wrong. It is good to know lots of stuff, okay? It's very good to have good Sound orthodoxy. I would much rather have a sound orthodoxy than not be orthodox, right? Obviously. However, what I'm trying to get across is there is another dimension to Christianity, and that is orthopraxy. Praxy, from which we get the word praxis or the English term practice. Having it straight the way that we walk. Paul labored in that in the scriptures. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, if you want to go through, we call Ephesians the little Romans. Um, both the book of Ephesians and the book of Romans are basically these big theses on this is how Christian life should look like and how it should work, okay? And it's probably why you'll hear so much of it come out of the pulpit. That's great places to find it. Uh, but if you read through it, if you read through Ephesians, you're going to find something out. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about orthodoxy. It's about what you believe. Right? Chapter 1, we've been predestined to adoption as sons according to the pleasure of His will. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Chapter 2, you He made alive who were once dead in trespasses and sin. Chapter 3, now in Christ the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body. They are the partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. That's all good teaching. That's good knowledge. We need to know those things. But Ephesians doesn't stop at chapter 3. 
Chapter 4 starts a literary rhetorical shift. What does it do? Paul now segues into showing how believing this gospel should change our lives. He moves to laboring into the field of orthopraxy. Chapter 4 tells us, Paul's beseeching us to, quote, walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Chapter 5 continues, Therefore be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ has also loved and given himself for us. Chapter 6 wraps up with a section on godly parenting, godly servant-master relationships, or we can say it this way, good way to, you know, relate with your boss today. There's also a descriptive metaphor about the spiritual armor of God and intercessory prayer. All of these are orthopraxy, how we practice, how we walk. Why do I tell you that? Because biblical discipleship is not just about proper beliefs, but also proper actions. And now in this second letter to, to Timothy, in this final epistle, the final thing that Paul has to say in all of his life, he's going to stress that. He's going to stress that. Timothy's I want you to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus 2-1 again and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will also be be able to teach others also notice the very next verse share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Share in suffering as a good soldier? Why would he want us to be a good soldier? You ever seen a soldier suffer? Why is he saying suffer like a good soldier? Not just a soldier, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know what a good soldier does? They go where they're told. They fight with all they've got. And they don't complain when the going gets tough. I've got news for you. The going will get tough. It will. And yet God tells us to go anyway. It's strange to me that when Paul is called, when Jesus sends his servant to talk to Paul, hey, I'm going to send you here. I want you to, uh, I want you to pray for him. I want you to lay your hands on him because I've chosen him as my vessel. And I'm going to show him what he must suffer for the gospel. Suffering is a part of the Christian life. And we here in America like to close our eyes to that and pretend it does not happen. The Bible has a promise for you. And it's one of those that, you know, like we're, we're really in, in Christianity in America. We're really into like grasping on the promises of God, right? That's just a promise. You just got to be holding. Got to hold on to it. Here's one for you. All who desire to live righteous in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution they will you'll be slandered you'll be ostracized you'll be talked poorly about does that give you the right to fire back nope jesus says don't return evil for evil that's tough it's tough What does Paul say to Timothy? I want you to find faithful men. I want you to raise them up. 
I want you to teach them not just how to learn about the faith, but show them how it works. Walk it out in front of them. Be a good soldier. What's that mean? You're going to go and do the mission, even when it's tough. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted. An athlete's not crowned until he competes, unless he competes according to the rules. And it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. There's actually three different messages in there. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. goes on to say this in verse 9, I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Timothy, teach these faithful men. Timothy, be willing to suffer for them. Chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, 3.10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. That's, that is to say my priorities, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Notice it is not just head knowledge. Timothy, you're not just following what I say. You're following how I do it. It can be summed up. In one verse, really, we find it in 1 Corinthians. Follow me as I follow Christ. Do you want to know what biblical fatherhood looks like? I just preached about that about a week ago. What does biblical fatherhood look like? That's what it looks like. Biblical fatherhood is not telling your children, hey, this is how you should do it. Biblical fatherhood is modeling it out in front of them. Do this like I do. You notice with little children, we do that like we've got a little... One and a half year old right now, right? When we pray, what do we tell him? Hey, we're praying. We're praying. We're putting our hands together. We're praying. Why are we doing that? Why am I putting my hands together when we're praying? I don't tell him, hey, put your hands together. I just say, look, we're praying. You know what he does? Puts his hands together. Why does he do that? Because he saw me do it. Right? i got news for you. As parents, there are a lot of things your kids do because they saw you do it first. Good or bad. All of us, want, we want them to pick up the good traits. We want them to, you know, gloss over the bad stuff, right? Let me tell you a story that I shouldn't tell you because it tells you all about my sin nature. <clears throat> my son, Jericho, who's now three, last year was out with me. He wants to fix fence with me. I'm out fixing fence, right? He has no idea what he's doing. He's a two-year-old. So I give him a little pair of pliers. He's, he's excited, man. So I'm over here fixing fence, and he's grabbing on with the pliers, you know, because in his mind that's what fixing fence is, just grab it with the pliers. But he's right next to me, and I forget about that because he's just, you know, going on. And I'm trying to get this wire wrapped around. And as I'm really straining, I snapped it. Ever done that? You tighten the bolt up just about a quarter turn too tight. Snap it. Made me say It's the middle of the day. It's hot. I'm sweating like a dog. And now I'm going to have to start this whole thing over. I get so mad. I take my pliers. Dad, damn it. Spot. Throwing a four-year-old fit at whatever, 39 years old. Right? Throw my hat down. I'm all mad. Now, I look over. I've forgotten that my son is 
eight feet down the line from me. He's looking at me wide-eyed, right? Next day, we're in the house. He gets mad. I don't even remember what about. I don't remember if it was because of the car or whatever. He comes into the living room, spikes the car. Dad, come it! Now, my wife wasn't out there to see me throw my temper tantrum. She is not excited about what he just did. I mean, she's getting up to give him the whooping, right? Why did he do that? You want to feel real sheepish as a dad? Actually, I'm probably the one that needs the spanking. All right, we've got a wooden spoon that hangs on the refrigerator. All right, go get the spoon. I'm thinking, uh, it's probably me that needs that one. So guess what I had to do? I had to apologize to my two-year-old son. Daddy shouldn't have done that. That was sin. Daddy lost his temper. He said words he shouldn't. Glad that was the worst it was. Have you done that? I've got news for you. If you haven't done that in disciple making, you will. You will. You'll do or say something and realize after you did it, it was wrong. I shouldn't have spoke to them that way. I shouldn't have treated them that way. I spoke in arrogance. I spoke in anger. I said something just to hurt them. Or I said something just to shut them up. I said something just to get rid of them because I'm tired of dealing with people today and I need some time alone. So what do you do when you do that? Well, you have two choices. You can either just pretend it didn't happen and just be arrogant, just, just marinate in your arrogance, or you can be a good reflection of Jesus Christ. You can have some humility. Well, that, that, that's fun, isn't it? I've had to do that in front of a class of high schoolers, you know, got onto somebody way too hard and go back and apologize. Let me tell you something. That is the worst group. Justin knows this is true to apologize to these high schoolers. They know everything already, right? And then you tell them you're wrong. They're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I know you're wrong. <laughs> but if we're going to be good examples of Jesus Christ, we're going to have to do those things. And they're not easy and they're not fun. But they're necessary and they're worth it. They're worth it. The Apostle Paul was willing to do it in his last letter he wrote in his life. Hey, I'm sorry the way that I treated Mark. Get him, bring him. What does he go on to say to Timothy? This is, remember, this is the last letter he's going to get to write in his entire life. He knows he's about to lose his head for the gospel. And what does he tell Timothy? The same charge I'll give you young men that God is raising up. The same charge I'll give you, Blake. Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will come to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. Well, that's tough. And teaching. In other words, even when you rebuke them, be gentle. I'm sure you're all experts at that. I'm still working on that too. We live in a culture where being smart mouth and having the last word is seen as the good thing, right? Oh, you're really smart if you're a smart mouth and you get the last word. That's what's shown on TV. That's what's shown on all the... 
right? All the shows, all the movies. That's not the example of Christ. It shouldn't be the example of us. What does it mean to preach the word? Does it mean just stand up in front of the congregation? Tell people the word? No, that may be part of it, but that is not what that means. The word preach here means to extol or to herald. Go out there and tell people about Jesus. When we're here, this is basically a discipleship setting. The vast majority of people here, we assume, are going to be Christians. That doesn't mean all of them. So obviously we should preach the gospel in the church too, right? But the point of this story is he's saying this to Timothy. Timothy, go. Be an evangelist. Go out there. Do it. Take the gospel out there to a dying world. Take the gospel Why? The time's coming. People won't endure sound teaching. They'll turn away from listening to the truth, right? Verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5 says this, But as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering. Seems like there's a pattern here. He keeps talking about this enduring suffering, doesn't he? Endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. Take the word out there. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. And I've kept the faith. That is a really gut-wrenching way of saying, Timothy, I'm about to be gone. Now it's time for you to do it. So do it. Be an example to the believers, not just in the way that you teach, but be an example to the believers in the way that you live. Be an example to the believers, not just in the things that you say, but be an example to the believers in the things that you do. Be an example to the believers, not just in the things that they hear you speak in the church. Be an example to the believers in the way that you handle people who despise you, people who speak ill of you, people who persecute you, people who talk badly about you. What would you say if it was your last letter? Paul is interested in raising up Timothy. And we as a church should be as well. We're not here just to fill pews. We're not here just so you can hear us talk. We're here to raise you up and to send you out. Sometimes that's tough. (laughs) As we get people and we love them and you pour into them and invest in them. And you want them to stay here forever, by golly. But sometimes that's not God's plan. We want to raise up, we want to raise up teams of people who can take the gospel with them. Do you realize in about a month we will have four worship teams? Four. Very good worship teams, I might add. Not a bad one in the bunch. Four of them? Think a worship team can help you plant a church? Or revitalize a church? I've helped plant a few churches. I've helped plant one church where I was the pastor and the worship team. Let me tell you something. That's tough. 
And it doesn't work real well. You know why? God has given gifts to more than just you, my friend. God has given gifts to others. And he intends them to use it. He intends those gifts to flourish. And those gifts are going to then help the church to spread. God has sent us a lot of very talented men and women. A lot of very gifted men and women. He has not sent us a lot of gifted men and women so that we could have, oh, we just want to have a church just brimming with all of these gifted folks. That is not why he sent them here. He has sent you here to be trained up, to be raised up, and to go forth. Take the gospel. Preach the word. Preach the word in what you say. Preach the word in how you do it. Preach the word in what you sing. But take the gospel. We're here to raise up Timothy. We're here to see Paul and Timothy relationships begun. We're here to see them extended. I hope it is our desire that as we have those Timothys raised up and sent out, that we would continue to be connected to them. I have a mentor as well, 40 years old. I do not know everything about Jesus and I don't know everything about the word. I've got a seminary degree and almost a second one. Guess what I found out? <laughs> my time in seminary, I probably actually grew backward in my knowledge of the Word. Now, I learned a lot about the Word. But I had less time in the Word myself. That's not good. I still have mentors. So should you. Three of my mentors are here in this church. Actually, four of them are. Why we do the eldership model we have. We have four elders, co-elders. We don't have a head elder and lower elders. We have four co-elders. Why? That means each one of our pastors has three pastors himself. You know what that, you know why we do that? Because we need them. Do I need to be pastored? Yes, I do. Is that hard for you to admit? Probably. I've got news. You need to be pastored as well. And a pastor is not just someone that teaches you by the way that they speak or the way they preach. They teach you by the way they live their lives. I want want you to know I've learned a lot about how to live this life in Christ Jesus by watching the example of these other men of God. A lot. I have another one who's still in Texas, John Hall. You've met him. He has been one of my mentors for almost a decade now. Why do I still call him? Why do I still ask those questions? Because he's, to me, he's still a Paul. And I'm still a Timothy. I need to learn. So what do I mean by all of what I've said? I, I mean this. <clears throat> we as a body must be about this thing. We as a body must not be about just adding numbers. If you're here, you're here for a reason. And that is, we want to very in, intentionally, we want to very intentionally train, equip, disciple, and raise you up. We don't want you just filling a pew. It's why we do the things that we do. And trust me, not one of the four of us has the extra time to do it. <laughs> You'll notice we're all bivocational. That's a tough gig. 
why will we spend so much extra time doing the things that we do? Because it's that important. It's important that you are equipped. It's important that you grow. Because it's important that you go out and do what God's called you to do. We are raising up Timothy. That's what we're about. I called John Hall a couple years ago because I had an offer to go be a pastor at a big church for a good salary. (laughs) Full time, you know. What do you think of this? Do you know what he told me? This is a man who was a pastor for 15 years. He pastored two churches, First Baptist churches, in 15 years. There's a lot of experience in that. Here's what he said. He said, if I were you, I'd stay where you're at. I said, oh, that's interesting. Why? Because ministry is not dependent on the money you make. Ministry is dependent on what you're doing. And you're at a place that's structured correctly. And you're trying to raise up Timothy's. And that should be the goal. And I said, okay. So I, th- I think if you go somewhere else, you're going to be you're going to be miserable. Now, why is that? Because in this point of my life, this is what God's called me to do. I have news, though. Some of you, it's not the same way. Some of you, God will call to go other places. He will call you to a different church. He will call you to take the things that you have heard here among many witnesses and entrust them to faithful men. And we're not intimidated by that. We're not threatened by that. That's a good and necessary thing. And that's what we want to be about.